Good morning, Grace Bible Church. Good to be back with you after my whirlwind uh, tour up to Maine, do a little fishing with my son. It's uh, the best week for fishing up there. Got some good therapy catching uh, some bass. Uh, it is harder because all the bass are wearing those little uh, coronavirus masks and it makes them harder to catch, but we had a great time. Well, we're back to looking at Job uh, this week. And uh, for those of you who've been reading along, I'd encourage you this coming week to finish uh, the remaining chapters in Job, which is Job 38 through 42. We have a couple weeks left yet before we wrap up this study. But this week, we're looking at Job 32 to 37. And if you read that and struggled to understand what was going on, if you said to yourself, uh, this seems like a repetition of what has already been said, if you wondered why this set of chapters was even included in Job, well, I'd say good, uh, because that means I'm not alone. I've had those same questions. Uh, it is, I think, the most difficult section of all in the book to understand. So let's uh, get the screen up here and uh, recapture where we were two weeks ago when we wrapped up. We were, last week, at a stalemate. Job and his uh, three friends, I uh, use friends in quotation marks there because they didn't prove to be all that good friends to him, but they had come to a stalemate. They had talked each other into silence and the argument was going no further after three rounds of discussion. The friends, we noted, could make, make no real progress in understanding what was going on in Job's life. They couldn't make any progress because they started with wrong assumptions, and we had listed these as we closed out two weeks ago. One of their assumptions was that they knew how God works. Now, we've got to be careful with that because uh, uh, obviously, uh, as Christians, we think we do know something how, of how God works. That's why we have the scriptures, among other things, to instruct us in the ways of God. The problem with the three friends, though, is that they think that they have a kind of exhaustive knowledge of how God works. And so when they come to Job's difficult situation, they've got uh, easy answers, ready answers to explain what is happening with Job. Of course, we as the readers know something that uh, those three friends don't know. We know the background of that discussion between the Satan, the adversary, and God himself. 
They have no knowledge of that. And as we know what that discussion was, it's very clear that they don't really understand uh, Job and what God is doing in that circumstance. So the problem is then that they do not allow for any mystery in the way that God works. We know, too, that their faith system is a system of belief. That is, they assume that they know the truth, and we, we say truth with a small t. It's not an exhaustive truth. It's not truth capital T, but it's their view of the truth, and, and their understanding of faith is very much the idea of a belief system. And because of that, uh, they get stuck. Among other things, the system says to them, seek God because it pays well. It's what we've called the retribution principle. You earn what you get in life. If you do well, you get blessing from God. If you don't do well, you end up with difficulty, punishment, discipline, a curse. And uh, that is an ironclad system for these guys. And so they look at Job and say, Job, you were living the blessed life. Now you're living the cursed life. And obviously you've done something wrong. That's what the system says. <clears throat> but we know that that is not an accurate assessment of Job's situation. Job, on the other hand, <clears throat> is someone who struggles, uh, but he makes some progress. Uh, and the reason is that Job is really seeking God, and he's seeking God honestly, sometimes a little bit too honestly. That is, we can be shocked a bit by some of Job's outbursts, not just against his friends, but even against God. Uh, he seems uh, bold, uh, arrogant at times, uh, frustrated, angry, all these things. But he is honest, and he's honest in seeking God. Job's faith, then, we've seen, is not in a principle or in a system, but Job's faith is in a person. Job wants to know God, and that is the driving thing through all those long chapters and all those long discussions. Job wants to know where God is. Knowing God, for Job, is more important than his health or his possessions. He's experienced this extraordinary loss. What is impressive in this book is that Job does not ask for his health back. He doesn't ask for his possessions back. Of course, he's lost much of his family, and uh, he can't get them back. But, but the focus of Job, what he's seeking, is not the things that he received as blessings from God, but rather he seeks God's presence. And so that refrain that we find in Job, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come into his presence. That's what Job wants. And because that's his desire, <clears throat> Job is commended at the end of this book in a way that the friends are not. So that's the stalemate we left with. Today, uh, we want to reflect on a new character who has not even been on the screen to this point. So if we think of Job as a kind of drama, we've had uh, the three friends, we've had Job, <clears throat> and, uh, 
And what we haven't been able to see is there is a person standing off in the wings who has been listening to the whole conversation. And uh, today, begin chapter 32, this new character comes on stage and engages the wise. The, the three friends who claim to be wise, Job, who is a man seeking after wisdom himself, <clears throat> now Elihu joins the conversation. And it's a very difficult section, but uh, we're going to work through and try to uh, pull out some of the main themes. So follow along as I read. <clears throat> Chapter 32. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the, with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. <clears throat> And then there's a long introduction, self-introduction by Elihu. And uh, now he speaks to the three friends. Verse 12. I gave you my full attention, but not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say, we have found wisdom. Let God, not man, refute him. It's not adequate to go silent here and just leave Job to, to God. But Elihu says, Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. Elihu has something different to say. Chapter 33, he speaks to Job. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. You have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure, I have done no wrong, I am clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak. Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. Chapter 34, Elihu said, Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Men of understanding declare, wise men who hear me say to, who hear me, say to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the uttermost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin, he adds rebellion. Scornfully, he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Well, uh, so let's talk a bit about Elihu. He is the character that I call the windy wise man. He's windy because he talks a lot. 
He spends almost the first chapter of his speech telling us all that he's getting ready to say something. <clears throat> I uh, came across a humorous cartoon this week. Here's a friend uh, talking the ears off his friend, blah, 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 blah. And the caption is, before the airbag, there was the windbag. And, uh, and it's easy to think about Elihu as being little more than a windbag. In fact, uh, that's what Martin Luther called him. Luther had little time for Elihu. And there's many other commentators since then that are pretty negative about uh, Elihu. He seems pretty clearly to have a high estimation of himself and his own opinions. And as we pick that up, we're inclined to think, well, there's not much going on here. And we're not sure uh, that he even belongs in the discussion. But uh, I'd say before we make too uh, rash a judgment on that, we ought to remember that whoever it is that wrote Job was an extraordinarily competent writer, an artist, a craftsman. So it's unlikely that that author would put five chapters in Job at this crucial point that really don't have anything to say to us at all. So let's assume that uh, though Elihu might not be the most attractive figure, he's got some important things to say here that we need to try to tease out. Elihu challenges the three friends and Job. We've just read that. He's got critique of both of them, and uh, we'll have to note that as we go along. But in addition to critiquing what he perceives to be their failures, he also proposes a few new directions to think about in this difficult situation that Job faces. And not only does he propose some new directions, but even more importantly, Elihu prepares Job and us as readers to meet with God. And we'll see uh, shortly how he does that. The God who in chapter 38 is going to speak to Job out of the whirlwind. This is Elihu's task. He's a transitional person in this play or drama that we've been listening to. All right, so uh, briefly, what is the critique that Elihu has of Job's friends. He's angry at them, we're told in chapter 32. Well, he's angry because he doesn't feel that they've really answered Job. And we, we have seen this before as we've listened to their critiques. Uh, they speak to Job, obviously, but they don't really uh, engage with Job's suffering. They mostly just bring accusation against him, and they do so uh, as guesswork. They're not aware of anything in Job's life that could really have provoked his suffering, but they assume it must be there. Eliphaz is probably uh, the, 
the clearest in doing this. Uh, Eliphaz says at one point, well, Job, you know, here's some of the stuff you've done. You were a rich man, you were powerful, you were influential, and so you must have, uh, you must have used your power and influence and your wealth to oppress people. You turned away the hungry. You didn't give water to the thirsty. You oppressed widows. You made life difficult for the orphans, for the weak. Uh, that's, now, there's no indication that Job did that. And we know from the beginning of Job that God says that he's a blameless man. But uh, this is the uh, critique that the friends make. And Elihu says, you guys haven't really answered Job. You haven't addressed his issues in a faithful way. So with that, what Elihu is really doing is he's beginning to critique the retribution principle. You remember that uh, retribution principle we've talked about a number of times now. It's, it's this theme that is woven through scripture that uh, you get what you earn. You, uh, you reap what you sow. That's what Paul says. And uh, that, that principle is very deeply embedded, not just in Scripture, but in the minds of many people. So here's a quote from Stephen R. Covey. You know, he was the uh, Mormon uh, business guru whose uh, popular book, uh, uh, the Seven Habits of uh, Successful People, uh, that sold widely. And, and here is the retribution principle quoted by Stephen Covey. You always reap what you sow. There is no shortcut. You always reap what you sow. Well, if we were doing a, a modern update of uh, the book of Job, Maybe, uh, you know, maybe you're going out to uh, Lancaster, to Sight and Sound, and they're presenting Job on stage. And the three friends come out, and one of them is Stephen R. Covey. Yep, you always reap what you sow, Job. Well, Elihu is backing away from that principle. Uh, this is where we have to read it pretty closely, but you'll notice as you read these chapters that Elihu is not interested in going back to Job's previous experiences and trying to figure out what Job did wrong. He, he virtually does none of that. And what that is suggesting is that, that we, the reader, are supposed to be thinking even more about this retribution principle. Uh, it is part of scripture. It is one of those basic principles of the way God has created the world to work, but it is not a, an explanation for all circumstances. That's what we need to take from Job. It is not certainly the answer to Job's situation, even though the three friends are convinced of it. So that's the critique of the friends. Now, from there, Elihu also goes on to critique Job. Job, he says, has impugned God's justice. 
Job is saying that God has not dealt fairly with him, that his suffering is uh, not at all appropriate given the life that he has lived. The scales of justice are broken. And Elihu is angry about that. The Job would even suggest it. There is a fundamental principle here that Elihu is pushing for, and that is that God must uh, always be regarded as the one who does what is right. In chapter 34, Elihu says, it is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Now in this, we've got to say, uh, Elihu is right on the money. This is one of the fundamental teachings of Scripture. Elihu has got this right, and Job has got it wrong. Job's being honest with God. He's frustrated. He's angry. He wants to have an interview with God because Job is convinced that he's in the right. And we know Job is in the right, but at this point, Job has such a conviction about his own rightness that he's willing to question God. And, uh, and Elihu says, that's inappropriate. You, I was, as I was thinking about this, I thought about that situation with Father Abraham in Genesis 18, where uh, God speaks to Abraham and tells him about uh, that wicked city of Sodom that is going to be destroyed. And there's a discussion that goes back and forth between Abraham and God because Abraham is concerned for his nephew Lot, who has moved into Sodom. And so Abraham has this interesting sequence with God where he says, well, you know, Lord, uh, suppose there's 50 righteous people in Sodom. Are you going to destroy Sodom? Are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And God says, no, I won't do that. Well, what, what if there's, you know, what if there's 10 there? What then? Uh, and in the course of that, Abraham makes this uh, important statement, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And it's a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions are not questions that, uh, that are uncertain in their answers. They're for teaching purposes, instruction pur purposes. They actually make a statement. So when Abraham says, shall not the judge of the earth, all the earth do right, he's expecting the obvious answer, of course, absolutely, certainly, the judge of all the earth does do the right thing. And that's the same outlook that Elihu has, and uh, he hears rightly that Job's made a mistake at this point. So for ourselves, let's remind ourselves as we grow in faith and trust toward uh, the God of the Bible, that this is one of those foundation blocks we have to build on. That what God does is right, even though at times we can't understand how it is right or if it is right, but this is our faith commitment, our trust that God does do what is right. He is the judge of all the earth, and he does the right thing. Second thing that Elihu raises with Job 
is this. He thinks that Job has ignored God's voice. Uh, Job has said in various places, God doesn't answer me. I, I want to know from him. What have I done wrong? What, I, I want to, him to acknowledge that my life has been right. And, uh, and he's frustrated because he, he can't hear that from God. He'd like to come into God's presence. He doesn't know where to find God. But what Elihu says is this in chapter 33. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak now one way, now another. So, Job, says Elihu, you know, there's more than one way that God has a speaking, and it may be that you have been ignoring some things that God wants to say. For example, uh, God sometimes speaks through dreams. Job, actually, in, in Job chapter 7, says that he's been having nightmares. Well, uh, uh, Elihu says, God may speak in a dream, in a vision of the night. He may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrong do wrongdoing and to keep them from pride. So, Job, let's think about it. Maybe God has already been speaking and you've just not been listening. Is that a possibility? There's another way that God may speak, and uh, Elihu raises this. Nobody's talked about this before in this drama, but uh, Elihu says in chapter 33, verse 19, someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones. Or in chapter 36, he says, those who suffer... He delivers in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. Well, Job certainly had plenty of suffering and affliction, and Elihu raises the question, Job, you know, God may be actually speaking to you in this very suffering you're experiencing. Uh, are you listening? Are you paying attention to this? Uh, and that's a... Uh, that's a worthwhile thing for all of us to reflect on. Uh, this reminds me of uh, a well-known quotation of C.S. Lewis in his little book, The Problem of Pain, where Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. How, uh, how have you experienced that? God shouts to us in our pains. Uh, all of us experience suffering in one way or another. It may be in relationships. It may be in our health. It may be in loss, uh, personal loss, uh, loss of someone who is close to us, whom we love and, and has been taken away. Uh, loss takes, or, or pain takes many, many different forms. But one of the questions 
that Job raises for us as a book and Elihu as a character raises is this. What is God trying to say to me in my pain? Lewis says it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's hard to look at that and not think about this COVID virus, huh? Uh, what could God have done to get the attention of the world, even those who may not know God, may not care for God, yet this is an event that has captured the world's attention. Are we willing to ask the question, is God speaking here? And specifically, not just as a group, but what is he saying to me in this? What can I learn in this experience of suffering, of discomfort, inconvenience, and so forth? Job, Elihu says, has ignored God's voice, at least in part. And then, of course, a big thing for Elihu is that Job is being arrogant and rebellious. Uh, he, he says, uh, you know, who, who is like Job that drinks up scorn like water, who aligns himself with wicked people? That's, that's what uh, Elihu hears in Job's critiques and and there's some real legitimacy there because Job, who has started simply questioning how God could do what he's doing, uh, looking for answers, becomes increasingly strident as you go through the book. And uh, from asking questions, he gets demanding, he gets angry with God, and even charges God with injustice. And Elihu says uh, that simply won't work. All right, so that's his critique of the characters we've heard so far. Now, in chapters 36 and 37, uh, this gets turned in a new direction. Let's hear Elihu again. Bear with me a little longer, and I will show you that there is more to be said on God's behalf. God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed his ways for him or said to him, you have done wrong? Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know how the clouds hang poised, whose one, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? You swelter in your clothes when the land lies hushed under the south wind. Can you join him in spreading out the skies? hard as a mirror of cast bronze? Tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and his great righteousness, he does not oppress. All right, so there's the negative contribution of Elihu, who critiques the friends and Job. But there's this positive dimension that we want to pick up in Elihu's speaking. And I'm going to say that the function of, of chapters 36 and 37 are to prepare the way for the coming of God. Because in chapter 38, next week we'll see it, God does show up after all this 
complaining of Job, asking for a, an audience with God. God is going to show up and uh, uh, talk with Job. But this is a transition. This is a preparation for that and, and helps us to think about what's coming as well. So what does he say to Job? Well, Elihu says, there is more that we need to say about God. And part of it is, Job, that he is wooing you from the jaws of, dis of distress to a spacious place. This is chapter 36 and verse 16. Now this is a, a, a transition here. As we pointed out, Elihu is not interested in going back to Job's previous life and try, trying to ferret out something that Job did wrong for which he's now suffering. Elihu doesn't spend time with that. Job wants to, to, to turn the direction of Job's thinking and, and our thinking to the present and to the future. And so he seems to raise this question, Job, is it possible that in your suffering that God is not interested in the past in something you've done wrong, but is God actually working into the future to protect you, to, as he says, woo you from the jaws of distress? It's as if he's saying, uh, Job, you see the sign ahead? Danger, thin ice? Well, maybe you're on a course that God sees is not good for you, and this experience of suffering is actually God at work in your life to preserve and protect you, and in the end, ultimately, to bring you to a better place. Is that a possibility that God could work that way? And that's another good question for us, isn't it? That through the experience of suffering, even deep suffering, that God is up to something that uh, we could not even fathom or expect. That's the question that is raised by Elihu and begins to turn Job's attention uh, to the future and ready him for his audience with God, although at this point they don't know that's going to happen. Second thing that is important with Elihu is that he comes down very hard on this idea that God is beyond our understanding. Chapter 36, verse 26. How great is God beyond our understanding? This is part of that uh, thing we've talked about a number of times now in the book of Job, that God has a certain mystery about him. God is the infinite one, the one who goes beyond all the limits of our understanding. We have these little finite pea-sized brains that try to interact with the infinite God. 
And uh, we continually bump up against things we can't understand, we can't comprehend. And that is Elihu's great point as we move toward chapter 38 and the actual meeting of Job and God together. Job, you need to consider this. God is great, and uh, Elihu illustrates this by an appeal to nature, particularly to the weather cycle. He talks at the end of chapter 36 about how God draws up the drops of water, which distill as rain in the streams. Clouds pour down their moisture. They give showers. Who can understand how he spreads out the clouds, says Elihu. See how he scatters his lightning about him. And uh, listen to his thunder, verse 33. His thunder announces the coming storm. Even the cattle make known its approach. At this my heart pounds and leaps from its place. Listen to the roar of his voice. And if, uh, you know, if we're out at sight and sound and we're watching the drama, and Elihu is now on center stage. And Job and his friends are there listening to this long discussion. And we can picture Elihu there uh, trying to explain the greatness of God or to talk about the greatness of God and calling attention to what God does so wonderfully in creation and in the weather cycle. And we can imagine that at this point, the... Uh, the stage lights begin to flicker a little bit. And from off stage comes uh, the sound of rumbling and booming. And over the next few minutes, the flashing gets stronger and the booming gets louder because the storm is coming. And uh, we hear Elihu say, at this my heart pounds and leaps in its place. And uh, after that, after the lightning, he says, comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. God coming on the wings of the storm, great beyond our understanding. This is the perspective now that Elihu wants to leave on our hearts and minds as we will move into the next chapter and we find that it's God himself who's going to speak out of this storm and call Job to account. And if God then is great beyond our understanding, then it is the case that in God's presence, humans don't even know what to say. Their mouths are shut. Uh, listen to this, says Elihu, verse 14. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God controls the clouds and makes his lightning flash? Do you know all these things? And in verse 19, he says, tell us what we should say to him. We cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told, I want to speak? Job, Elihu says, be careful what you wish for. You've been asking for an audience with 
God, do you have any idea what it will mean to you if you get your wish? Are you going to say in his presence, I want to speak? Well, that's a, a great lead-in to our study next week because we're going to find that uh, when God does show up, Job has very little to say. But we'll save that for next week as we uh, leave today and wrap up here. Uh, i just leave you with two questions that have been on my mind all through this study in Job, and perhaps you will find them helpful as well. Here's the uh, first question. What are you hearing in your pain? Because I think that Elihu is right, and C.S. Lewis is right, that God speaks to us in our experience of pain. Pain in its various forms, physical, mental, emotional. Uh, pain exposes us. Pain allows us to see what is going on in our lives. And that pain can indeed be God's voice to us, calling us uh, away from danger, you know, the thin ice that's up ahead. It can be God calling us, as Elihu says, actually into a better place. Not pleasant, but God does speak to us uh, in those situations. So what are you hearing in your pain? What might God be teaching you? And then a second question is this. What do you want most from God? We've seen this is uh, the question that is raised right in the first chapter of Job. The adversary says, oh, God, uh, I understand Job. You blessed him with all these different things. Of course, he's going to want to love you and serve you. You make it easy for him. What we find is that, in fact, those things, those blessings that God gave Job, are not the most important thing for him. The most important thing is his relationship with God. Job wants to know God. He wants to know that he is rightly related to God. That's why he wants God to vindicate him, to say, yes, Job, you are going in the right direction. What do you want most from God? What does Dave Dunbar want most from God? God's blessing? Uh, possessions, uh, strong family life, friends, uh, security, safety, good health. All those things are nice. But do I want something beyond that and more fundamental to all of those things? Do I want a relationship with the living God, the God who is here? who desires love from me. Is that what I want? So two questions to reflect on this week. And if you have a chance and a desire, 
read Job 38 through 42, which will take us to the end. We've got a couple of weeks left and we'll be done our study in Job. So the Lord bless you. Let me pray God's blessing upon you for this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. <laughs>